From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Plaquenil Screening and Cost, Part 1. That these tests wouldn't add detectable cases. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you, speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. Plaquenil maculopathy is an infrequent but serious condition. Fortunately, early signs are detectable, and it is for this reason that ophthalmologists perform Plaquenil screening. As our technologies have changed, the recommendations for Plaquenil screening have changed as well. We heard earlier from Michael Marmor about the Academy's new recommendations for ophthalmic screening for Plaquenil maculopathy. We'll hear today and next time from David Browning about the cost-effectiveness of these new recommendations. The interview was lengthy, and we'll hear part one today. Dave, since we're going to be talking about the impact of the new AAO guidelines for hydroxychloroquine maculopathy screening, let's first talk about how these guidelines have changed. The previous AAO guidelines for Plaquenil screening were released in 2002. Dave, in the days of dinosaurs before 2002, what did ophthalmologists do? Well, they did a variety of things, but most of them involved a check of best corrected visual acuity, a check of the cornea for any deposition, Uh, a fundus exam looking for obvious uh, maculopathy. Uh, Many did a form of a color vision test. Many did Amster grid testing. And increasingly in the 90s, uh, there was static automated perimetry done, specifically 10-2s. That became more solidified in 2002, but it was increasing throughout the 90s. And what were the 2002 AAO guidelines? In 2002, uh, the guidelines were that everyone deserved a baseline examination, and then patients were to be stratified into low-risk and high-risk groups. And you got into the high-risk group if you took over 6.5 milligrams per kilogram per day, if you'd taken Plaquenil for more than five years, if you had renal or liver disease, if you had a pre-existing macular abnormality like macular degeneration, or if you're over the age of 60. And those folks uh, got a yearly screen. But if you were in the low-risk group, they recommended just having the uh, AAO-recommended follow-up for uh, persons in your age group. So, for instance, for someone from 40 to 64, that would have been an exam every two to four years. And, And the exam, the screening exam, included a best corrected visual acuity with a complete eye exam and then uh, answer grid testing or 10-2 testing. And then only uh, 10-2, uh, if for, for this patient's being followed with an Amsler grid, only a, a 10-2 if something 
appeared on on Amsler. You didn't, you didn't have to do that. They they left you open. It, it was considered good practice to go ahead and get a 10-2 if you wanted to, but if you didn't, you weren't you weren't um, uh, considered in any way negligent if you just did an Amsler grid. Um, they definitely bought into the idea that. Uh, 10-2 was a good idea by the year 2002. In the year 1992, that was the idea. That was uh, Easterbrook's published idea that you only get a 10-2 if, if you have an abnormal Amsler. But things had gotten more technological by 2002. Now, how do the new 2011 guidelines differ? And, and in what regard are these 2011 guidelines meant to be better? The concept of, quote, objective tests was introduced, and specifically that referred to multifocal ERG, uh, spectral domain OCT, and fundus autofluorescence. And in view of uh, some uh, tantalizing small case series in which these techniques were shown in particular cases to pick up retinopathy at a stage when 10-2 findings were equivocal or misinterpreted, or maybe not even there, um, it was by this consensus group of experts decided that they needed to be incorporated into the paradigm. So the, the change was now you stick with the same baseline and you stick with the same uh, stratification into low and high risk groups with the five-year uh, second screening visit guideline. But now the tests were different. In addition to complete eye exam with best corrective visual acuity and 10-2 now, with AMSR grid being deleted, now it was recommended that if you had access to a multifocal ERG, a spectral domain OCT, or a fundus autofluorescence machine, you should augment your 10-2 with one or more of those. And that was to be at all those exams, baseline and follow-up. And that's a big change. Dave, what question did your study seek to answer? Okay, um, my study was uh, designed to assess what happened in a real-world setting when these guidelines came out. So they were published in February 2011. And so I looked at uh, patients in our practice. We have 29 eye care providers, 26 ophthalmologists, and three optometrists who screen patients, and looked at um, consecutive patients who were screened for plaquenil toxicity after uh, the guidelines were published. I, I gave uh, a couple months for uptake, so I began the study in, in May of 2011, and then followed those, um, compared those to the care and the screening that was done for the patients who had been screened before the guidelines came out, and, and that provided a subset of 183 folks, and it also there were 36 who were new folks had their first baseline exam after the guidelines, so it's possible to see what, how the baseline exams changed because we knew how the practice screened in the years before, and we were able to, to look for changes. So that was the purpose. And the, and the idea was to see, one, did it change detection rates for retinopathy? Two, did it change costs? And three, uh, which of the recommendations were embraced? and which were not well received by actual practitioners. Dave, can I get you to describe the design of your study? Okay, it was a chart review. Um, the study was a chart review. It was um, based on accessing the EMR uh, database of everyone who had a V58.69, and then uh, pulling those charts 
and extracting to a pre-specified template uh, the patient's age and gender, uh, dosage if recorded, height, weight if recorded, uh, duration of therapy, and then a review of the ancillary tests, the 10-2s, the, the spectral domain OCTs, and the multifocal ERGs, because all of these, all of these modalities are available in, in the practice. So any decision whether or not to obtain them was the clinician's decision, not based on was the test available. Uh, this reflected clinical decision-making. And then I, I, I recorded what the clinician, the, the person screening, said and, look, and what their actions were. And then I also reviewed the data to assess um, my agreement with what they had done. But the, the report is, has to do with what the clinicians who screened the patients found. It was not the subject of this report, what I thought of the, the screeners' uh, assessments. It was just reporting what they really did and what they didn't do. Dave, what were your results? What were your findings? First, there were a number of things that were cut and dried. Uh, although fundus autofluorescence was available in multiple locations, uh, there wasn't a single patient who had it done. And that was despite the fact that fundus autofluorescence in the revised guidelines received equal billing to multifocal ERG and spectral domain OCT. Uh, second, the clinicians completely ignored the um, guidelines regarding second screening visits for low-risk patients. There wasn't anybody who had a baseline exam and then was told, we'll see you in five years. They all were screened either um, six months or 12 months, and it was roughly equal. Um, there was about a third of the patients did not have uh, their heights, weights, or daily doses uh, checked, and therefore it was not possible from the data in the chart and for the clinician screening the patient to determine if do daily dosing was toxic or not. But in the two-thirds for whom the data were available, uh, toxic dosing was present in 12.8%. So there's a, there is a, a large proportion of patients uh, in whom uh, the dosing is in a, a level known to put the patient at higher risk for retinopathy. Um, of the 28 patients who were uh, overdosed based on the, the evidence in the chart, only 10 had their dosages reduced or a letter to the rheumatologist suggesting that doses be reduced by the ophthalmologist so that um, 18 had this um, overlooked, either consciously or, or, or for reasons not specified. We found two, um, two patients who had new retinopathy those patients were illustrated in the paper, and both of them were detectable based on standard automated perimetry, static automated perimetry, um, corroborated by a, one of the other tests, but no patient had retinopathy detected by one of the new so-called objective tests and not picked up by uh, static automated perimetry. Uh, the costs were inflated. Based on the new paradigm, on average, the cost went up 40% um, based uh, on 2011 Medicare reimbursement rates for the CPT codes compared to pre-revised guidelines uh, costs, and, um, and yet there was no higher rate of detection based on the statistical rule of three uh, since there wasn't any additional retinopathy detected out of 183 
um, in the sample size, one can say with 95% probability um, that these additional tests would detect no more than 1.6% uh, new cases of retinopathy, at least according to the, uh, the interpretational lights of the clinicians in this practice. Um, and so uh, there were questions raised about um, whether or not these guidelines were published um, and will be applied to a large universe of treating physicians before performance characteristics of these tests in a, in a broad um, real-world setting had been assessed. And uh, do the guidelines inflate the cost of care with no true payback in terms of reducing the burden of disease? And finally, the, um, the emphasis I tried to shift based on this data to detection of toxic dosing. This is the one thing that, that the screener can do that will reduce the risk of, risk of retinopathy. All the other approaches uh, simply detect something at an early stage and one then sits and sees if it progresses if drug is, is stopped. Uh, but if you, if you change the emphasis not to detecting retinopathy but to detecting toxic dosing, then you can actually potentially reduce the burden of disease in the plaque windmill taking population. And that, that's not something that's stressed in the literature. In fact, if you read the guidelines both in 2002 and 2011, the emphasis is that toxic dosing is taken as a risk factor um, as though it's something like your age or uh, your cumulative dose or whether you have renal dysfunction, something that's inalterable, uh, which is probably um, not the kind of a mindset you want your screener to have. Can I just get you to elaborate on, on, the, on the rule of three? Yeah. Okay, here's the rule of three. That there's commonly a dilemma in ophthalmology. If you apply a test and you don't ever find anything, well, what does that mean? So, for instance, in 183 patients, we applied additional ancillary tests, and we didn't find any additional retinopathy that wasn't already detected by static automated perimetry. So, based on that, can you put a, can you come up with a confidence interval uh, to say with 95% probability or whatever level of uh, certainty you desire that these tests wouldn't add detectable cases? And there is a, there is a it goes by the name of the rule of three, which allows you using binomial probability um, theory say that if if you didn't find it in 183 cases, then it's 95% likely that you won't find it in three over that sample size. That's the percentage that you might, you might be able to find additional cases. Well, three over 183 is 1.6%. That, that gives us an estimate that, at best, adding spectral domain OCT and multifocal ERG to your screening armamentarium might increase your detection rate by about 1.6%. Is it worth increasing screening costs by 40% to, to detect possibly an additional 1.6% um, of cases when the rate is already very, very low. We'll end part one here and pick up where we left off next time. David Browning is a retina specialist at the Charlotte Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat Associates in Charlotte, North Carolina. His paper, Impact of the Revised American Academy of Ophthalmology Guidelines Regarding Hydroxychloroquine Screening on Actual Practice, 
appears in the March 2013 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Browning or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.